Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today, we're going to talk about shame-proof parenting. I will be the first to admit how many times have my kids had some sort of behavior that I felt judged by, I felt shameful of. I don't think I'm alone out there. So when I came across the book, Shame Proof Parenting, I thought, all right, let's get this person on the podcast and have a conversation. So I reached out to Mercedes Samudio and she said, yes, she said, sure, I will talk to you about my book, Shame Proof Parenting. Let me tell you a little bit about Mercedes. She's an LCSW, it's a license of clinical social worker, and she's licensed, she's a licensed psychotherapist, parent coach, speaker, and best-selling author who helps families develop healthy parent-child relationships. Mercedes is an adjunct professor where she teaches psychology, diagnosis of mental illness, and multicultural counseling. She's an accomplished speaker who trains on topics such as her parental identity development model, multicultural counseling, and developing a clinical identity. Mercedes started the hashtag end parent shaming movement, as well as coined the term shame-proof parenting, using both to bring awareness to end parenting shame. I'm fully behind that. We do not need to shame parents. We It is a hard job being a parent, and I love everything Mercedes has to say. We went really deep into this conversation. Um, I dove into her book, and I just drank it up, and we go through a lot of parts of her books, and she gives some great tools and some great insight. So I think you're going to very much enjoy this conversation. Before we get to that, I've had people ask me, Deb, what are you planning to do as we continue our way, hopefully, fingers crossed, out of this pandemic? What are we going to do with our in-person classes and our online classes? So our in-person classes are really starting to flourish. I'm really excited to say that. Um, We have in-studio classes right now. I believe it's four days a week, and we're going to continue to add to that. But we have our online classes seven days a week. We have been fortunate throughout this experience of coming online, of growing our community. So we're going to continue that. There's no reason to close those doors. So we're going to continue online classes seven days a week and slowly add to our in-studio, in-person classes. We're also having in-studio workshops, childbirth ed, caring for newborn, lactation prep, And then we have many of those also online, and we have started to develop a fair amount of on-demand classes. So if our schedule doesn't fit your schedule, you do you. You watch it, you do the workshop when it's best for you. 
Also, if you're kind of achy and uncomfortable and you can't make it to class because it's hard to get a class in every day, head to our website and grab my downloadable five simple solutions to the most common C pregnancy, I should say, and postpartum pains. And if you just need a quick shoulder opener, quick neck release, little hip situation, I got you covered. You can take a peek at that, give yourself five minutes because it's important to take care of yourself and be on your way if you can't make it to a whole class. And then when I do see you in class, um, let's just do a quick online high five. And then last thing I just want to mention is we've decided what we're going to do with our online teacher trainings, because now that we're starting to unfold our in-person classes, I have to decide, am I going to try to run them both at the same time? So we're going to do January and February will be our online teacher training. Can you believe we've done seven now online since the start of this pandemic? I'm actually kind of loving it. And then we're back in person for March and April. We'll be back in person again for September and October. And then for the colder months where weather can be a little tricky, November and December of 2022 will be online. I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but 2023, January and February back online. So I'm so proud of this 85 hours. It's really more than 85 hour teacher training. It is thorough. It is deep. It is evidence-based. It is a passion of mine. So if this is something that you're interested in and you want to learn more about, check that out on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. All right, cool. We're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Mercedes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Mercedes. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for asking. I'm so excited to talk. So before we started recording, I was just gushing to you about how much I loved your book and I love the tone and I basically went through it like a book report. So I'm so excited <laughs> to dive in and really talk about the concept of shame-proof parenting because I think so many of us as parents, we carry shame on so many levels and you you really unpack that so well. So I guess before we get into a little bit about your philosophy and your book, I'd love to learn a bit about you and what inspired you to write Shameproof Parenting? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for sharing how much you enjoyed the book. I think that is as cliche as it sounds, what really inspired me um, as I was writing it to be thinking about how can I support parents in a way that actually helps them to feel supported, not mm. so much as supporting them with more skills and more tools and more ways for them to feel like they're not doing it. But how can I write a book about parenting where I actually help parents to see that they are doing really well just because they picked up this book and started reading it, mm. right? And I I think that to me always really became the the thoroughfare, if you will, for every chapter, every 
anecdote, every quote. And then overall, if we're being honest, what really inspired me was my own life and the the lives of all the parents that I had been privileged to work with. And that's that idea that parenting affects so much of what we do. I think it's important for us to really pay attention to how it influences us Mm -hmm. and how can we support ourselves as we work through how those influences have changed our lives and will change our children's lives. Yeah, because we definitely as parents model a lot for our children and shame is not one of those that we want to pass down. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. will you share, one thing I was mentioning before we started recording is I appreciated your openness about your own life and Mm -hmm. how that, I'm guessing, helped move you to be a social worker, um, you know, a a licensed clinical social worker. So can you share some of your own stories that influenced your approach in shame proof parenting? That is a great question, and I love that you asked it because I think that's the crux of how I am as a therapist. I'm very big on storytelling and narratives because I think stories really help us to understand how we have experienced and been influenced by those experiences. Mm-hmm. And so as you answer that, ask me that question, I'm happy that you picked up on that theme in the book where sharing my story um, about how my mom who raised me, who is my step-grandmother, how her parenting really affected me, um, getting a physical abuse, dealing with emotional abuse. Um, one of the stories I lead off the book with, which is um, a really severe physical abuse story, is something that even in my own professional world, I don't get to see a lot of. We don't hear what really influenced someone to even think that parenting was important enough to pay attention to. And I think that was why I did this. And so I think one story I'll give you mm-hmm. has nothing to do really just with me, but it has to do with my professional self. And that was, I met this girl, I'm going to call her Jane, and she's a teen mother. And when I started to work with her, um, I was 22 just out of grad, undergrad, really trying to figure out if social work was the thing I wanted to do. And working with her, I realized how generational our understanding of parenting is. Because you have Jane, who is 15 years old, becoming a mother herself, but she's also living in the home of her mother and her grandmother, right? So it's her child's grandmother and great-grandmother. It's four generations of people in this house. And really watching how the grandmother influenced her mom, how her mom influenced her, and how she's even caring for her child really helped me to look at, this is generational. We don't come into parenting just with our own ideas. We come in from our grandparents and our aunts and our parents and the people we see on TV. We come in with a lot of this. And I think that's my philosophy with shame-proof parenting and other things that I'm doing. It's really about looking at how this is not just something inherent. This is something that we've learned over generations. Yeah. No, as you say that, I think about the good and bad I've seen of my parents. And then we've always talked about the grandparents. It's definitely something I think to consider. So I definitely think we should start with a definition of shame because I think maybe as we talk about shame-proof parenting and the shame that, you know, parents have in just in general, let's make sure we're all on the same page. 
Yeah. And so shame to me, especially in the context of shame-proof parenting, is anything that makes you feel less than any experience, any phrase, any word, any person um, that makes you feel like because of that experience, I am now less than, I am no good. That's what shame is to me. Yeah. And I can sell definitely as a parent, there's been moments where I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not doing this right. I feel less than on many occasions. So how do you see that shame infiltrates parenthood? And I, that's kind of a, a big question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'll take it from, you know, the book's approach, which is it infiltrates in the ways we begin to respond to ourselves and our children. So I'll take kind of your, you know, that broad example of there are many times when parents feel ashamed, right? What do we do with it, right? So we're in Target and our kids having a hard time and they fall over in the floor and maybe knock over something, right? That's embarrassment initially, right? Right. But what do we tell ourselves about why our kid did it, why we allowed it to happen, what everyone else is thinking really begins to form into shame. And it may, depending on how similar experiences have been for you or other people in your life, or even just with you and your child, that shame will be the foremost responding emotion as opposed to empathy or compassion or even understanding. And so I think oftentimes when we have all of these narratives that say you have to be a good parent, your kids have to always be a reflection of you, you can't mess up, they can't mess up, something as innocuous as my kid having a hard time and not something over in the store becomes about how horrible I am as a parent and how horrible my family is. And that's why I respond the way I might to my child. Mm. Yeah. So it becomes a story of judgment, of feeling that internal self-judgment. I also just side note, love that you picked Target because that is our spot that as soon as we, if we're going to go, we're like, all right, is everything okay? Because there's bound to be some sort of confrontation at Target. So yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if that's yes. just across the board, but Target it is. is. <laughs> it is. And let me, and I'll tell you why Target is, and I've told um, many parents this, Places like that are cesspools of overstimulation for the parent and the child. You're overstimulated by your to-do list, but also Target is actually designed to overstimulate your your wanting to spend money. And so you, by yourself, going to Target, by yourself, you get overstimulated. You have to kind of focus in so you can do what you need to do. Think about a kid who doesn't even have the skill to focus in and do what they need to do. Right. Put both of you guys together in a store like that. It's bound to be a lot of stuff going on. All right. Well, that actually helps me feel a little better because it always is like, <laughs> okay, brace yourself. Is everyone eaten? Is the blood sugar good? Everyone's happy. We're going to Target. Yep. It's definitely one of those, but that actually helps. So how, how would you talk about the three, you, re, you lay it out nicely, the three aspects of shame to consider. Can you explain those? Yeah, you know, I'll go into kind of this idea that I think they encompass. And this is that idea that understanding how your shame really actually shows up for you is going to be your best bet in trying to shame proof your parenting. Mm. And so when you think about that, you're thinking about, okay, what's my story, right? What's my narrative? And I even sometimes have parents pare it down to the incident. Um, a really good example is I was working with a parent who told me, I know I'm not supposed to spank, but my first instinct when my child disrespects me is to give them a pop on their hand. And I began to say, can you tell me a story about that? Any story that comes to mind, I just want you to tell me about it. 
And she said, oh, I have a great one. Um, when me and my mom, and she goes into this really heartbreaking story of how her mom took her to something where she was supposed to get something like a dress or something, but they couldn't quite find the exact thing. And she wasn't a baby anymore. She was like 15 or 16. And she kind of started to get a little frustrated. She starts stumping her feet and kind of being a little brat, if you will, for lack of a better term. And her mom said, hold out your hand. And she did really apprehensively. And her mom slapped her in the hand and said, never disrespect me like that again in the store. So it, so we're living our past. Yep. Yep. So- <laughs> and, and, and I should have said, I'll do this. I should have said trigger warning. Sorry. That no, is kind no, no, of a good no, story. No, but, but I think it really encompasses the idea that a lot of times we don't know where we first picked up our associations with things like disrespect mm-hmm. or chaos or overwhelm. But it's one of the reasons why I love talking about people's narratives, right? Which is the best way to bring out our shame because it's like, when's the first time you remember this or when sometimes you remember that, or I don't even like to make people go back some places. I'll just say, tell me a story about it, mm-hmm. right? About this particular thing. And you'd be surprised what people come up with. And I think when we think about that our stories, our narratives, our past, it really becomes, oh, this is where I first thought this was something bad. And this is something that made me a bad person. Yeah. When I was reading this um, over the weekend, I had a long train ride up to Boston, four and a half hours each way. So I sat down with your book and kind of went to town. Mm -hmm. What I found myself doing was at moments, just pausing and reflecting and thinking, what are my stories? Where were those sparks of kind of like the seed that then grew? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just interesting to reflect because I don't think many of us, or I should speak to myself, that I don't often sit and have that open space of mm-hmm. self-examination that way of, okay, I could see myself as a parent doing this and where did that come from? Oh, that came from when I was six and this happened. It was just, it was mm-hmm. interesting to sit and just dive in because it's not something I usually put in my day. My day is usually, I think like many parents, right. like minute to minute to minute and right. spaciousness to reflect. I guess that's where therapy comes in. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, for sure, for sure. So as a parent who has a son who's recently diagnosed with ADHD, I'm constantly feeling judged for his behavior by everyone, including family. What is something you want parents to know about not feeling responsible for their child's behavior? Oh, that is big. And I will send you so much love and compassion because for any time you get a diagnosis for your child, whether it is a behavioral health diagnosis or a physical health diagnosis, things change about the way that you relate to yourself and your child. And I would say that is, I think, the first step is to realize that now that you know what might be causing some of the behaviors or some of the feelings Take a step to forgive yourself for how you may have seen those feelings, those behaviors in the past. Mm-hmm. Take a step back to say, you know, I didn't know that this was what was going on. And so I forgive myself for maybe believing his behavior was about this or believing their attitude was about that. And then saying to yourself, now that I know that, how would I like to respond in the future? Right. Now that makes sense. And for the parents that maybe it's not like an ADHD diagnosis or just, you know, kids have meltdowns, kids have tantrums, yeah. um, kids can talk back. And 
there, I feel like sometimes there's judgment by others and not sometimes there's judgment by others. Yes. yes. (laughs) And it can be hard as a parent not to let that child's behavior feel like a reflection of them as a parent and their parenting skills. Can you talk a little bit to that? Well, I think it's important to understand that what happens in our family is on a spectrum. And so there's no, this happened because of that. There's really this idea of how am I responding when this happens? And I think that helps to shift from finding blame for anybody, whether it be the parent or the child or the diagnosis or the medication, you're not really looking for blame. You're really looking for now that this is happening, how do I want to respond? Right. And I think one of the things that helps with that is when we're introduced to maybe a new behavior, Behavior with our kid. Maybe previously they told me, told you what they wanted and now they're having meltdowns. Or maybe before you knew there was a diagnosis, you behaved a different way. I think realizing that in this moment is the right time to realize I want to do it differently. It doesn't mean you're going to, but you can definitely decide, you know what? I didn't like the way I responded to his tantrum. I didn't like the way I responded to setting a boundary with my, my child. Like paying attention to that, I think helps us then to make decisions outside of those intense moments. And so a good example is if let's say bedtimes are really difficult. Maybe thinking about starting a new bedtime routine on a night where the next morning isn't important and you can trial and error things that make bedtime easier, mm-hmm. right? This way, you and your child aren't holding yourselves to, we have to wake up in the morning, you have to go to bed now, but you can really play around with, well, what does he need to go to bed? Does he need a bed, this, or does he need this, or will we need to kind of start bedtime sooner? It allows both you and your child to figure out how can we do this without the weight of something like having to be there on time or having to do this at the right time over you. And I think that gives both of you some time to see, is this a parenting skill moment? Is this a diagnosed behavior moment? Is this just a life moment that you and I as a family have to get through? You get to kind of figure out which one it is. I like that. Okay. We're going to talk about labeling. We're going to take a super quick break first, but when we come back, I'd love for you to talk about the effects of labeling, both good and bad labeling. We'll be right back. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. So this was interesting because I've been catching myself noticing of like, oh, good girl, good boy. I'm like, ooh, I'm putting that on them. And then after reading your book, I'm like, does that mean they're going to carry this weight on them? (laughs) So (laughs) it's so interesting because I read a lot of parenting books um, for my podcast and also because I I think they're interesting. Um, But then they kind of, then I notice my own actions and how it's like some of them are so classic. So can you talk about the effects of labeling both good and bad labeling? Yes. And I think let's start off with even the question, good and bad labeling, right? 
it's this idea that we as humans have to categorize things. We need to know, is this good? Is this bad? Is this right? Is this wrong? What I say oftentimes with parents is the first thing you want to ask yourself when you're thinking about labeling your child's behavior is to get curious about why do you think it's happening first, mm-hmm. right? Well, they're having a tantrum because we're at Target and I remembered, right, this is an overstimulating environment. When you decide that, the, the idea that this is an overstimulating environment you now don't have to label anything as good or bad or right or wrong. It's just the truth, right? That we're both overstimulated. And so maybe this needs to happen or maybe that needs to happen. Or I even like what you say, sometimes you even do some prep before we go because to make sure everybody's in their right mindset. When you kind of move away from labeling things on a spectrum as good or bad, but you just name what you're actually seeing, it helps you to be more curious about what you're seeing as opposed to relegating it to a certain side of the spectrum and then responding on what side of the spectrum it is as to as opposed to responding to what it actually is. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then I was thinking, if I'm constantly saying so-and-so is good, did they then feel that responsibility to always Mm -hmm. live up to good? So I've been trying, and I think this isn't unique, but this is something I think a lot of parents may be taking in mind. Instead of calling good or bad, praising what they're doing or like, oh, you did a really great job reading tonight. That was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of you. Or Mm -hmm. you seem like you had a harder time tonight. You know, I'm here to support you. So, and I, it's so easy to fall into that good or bad. And then again, through your book, I started reflecting like, oh, I was always brought up with the good or bad. So again, we're just like mm. reflecting where we're recreating, I guess, our childhood for our kids in a way. Yeah. And, and I think another good point that I'll share is it's really also about, we want our kids to understand that eventually They'll have to see things in a more gray area. Mm-hmm. And so good and bad actually become really extreme examples of how we're supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't operate in those extremes. Nobody right. that, I mean, I won't say nobody, but a lot of, most people aren't inherently bad or always making bad decisions. And most people aren't always inherently good making good decisions. And so I think, again, we're thinking about how am I helping my child be able to be a fully whole human. If I'm only relegating their behaviors to good and bad, they don't understand what great area behaviors are. That makes um, sense. Right. They don't understand that sometimes we yell because we're angry, not because we're bad. Right. Yeah. No, that really, that was really helpful. So as I was going through the book, you had something called the shame iceberg. <laughs> I, I, I loved it. So uh, uh, let me just kind of go and with my thought process and please stop me if this doesn't make sense. So when I was thinking about the the shame iceberg, I was thinking about my son who often had, well, not often, but sometimes has freak out tantrums, which then set me off. And about Mm -hmm. half the time I get frustrated with his tantrums. But when you were talking about that, it made me start to think about the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot going under the surface. So how do we as parents recognize all the unsaid needs and not add to the shame and discomfort that the child is feeling because it just made so much sense. I'm like, Oh, he's just, he's demonstrating these behaviors, but these behaviors are a result of all of that deeper iceberg underneath. Am Mm. I making any sense with this? Complete sense. And I think, I think the first step is to realize you're not going to recognize all the unsaid needs. Okay. 
And I think that's the first thing that I often tell parents that because parents are, I have to always know what's going on with my kid. There's no way to always know what's going on with your kid. However, there is someone you can always check in with. Me. And that's yourself. <laughs> yep. You can always know where you're at. The reason why I like to teach parents the same iceberg is because it helps you to realize you're the same. When you're getting frustrated with your son's tantrums, that's your shame iceberg too. So on the top is just frustration, but underneath there may be so many other things going on that you might need to check in with, right? And it's good to help. I always teach my parents, if when you learn a new concept, especially from shame-proof parenting, start looking at how do I honor my own shame iceberg? Because the process you go through, that is the process you'll use to walk your child through. Mm, that's helpful. So with when we do that, how can we make sure we're not recreating or reshaming our child? Yeah, yeah. And so I think being honest sometimes and saying the truth. I've actually taught parents how to tell children how the tantrums make you feel, right? Because oftentimes I can't tell my kid I have feelings, but you can. And so you could say as your child's having a tantrum, mommy's going to take some deep breaths because seeing you so uncomfortable is hard for me. So I'm going to, if you want to go with me, you can, but if you're getting your feelings out that way, that's fine. I'm just taking some breaths right now because I'm getting a little, whatever words you use, a little hot, a little red, a little frustrated, a little angry, right? Whatever language you're teaching your child about feelings, Ding, ding, ding means we need to be teaching our child language around feelings. You can actually start using in those moments because you're even using that language to help yourself calm down while you're modeling for your child. It's okay to be upset, but it's also okay to calm down. What age could this relate to? Because I'm thinking about my Mm -hmm. audience and we probably have people from having are pregnant to newborns to teenagers. Where yeah. where can this fit in? The truth is everywhere because there was that ding ding ding, right? That red flag, which is teaching our families emotional language. And so even in the womb, you can start talking about language. When your child comes out as you're talking to them, I'm right now going to wipe your bottom. I bet you this wipe feels cold, right? You're starting to teach words so your child can actually start to name their experiences, right? And as they get older, you teach them just like you teach them apple and cat. You can also teach them when we smile, that means we might be happy. And when we go, hmm, and make a frown, that might mean we're sad. Or you start kind of teaching them stuff the same way you teach them kind of like about their body or about something in the world, you also start to infuse that language. So then in tantrums, it's not the first time they're hearing the word sad or frustrated. They actually start to think, oh, mommy, I want to eat more cookies. I am frustrated, right? Now, obviously a newborn can't talk that way, but as you start to talk around your kid, think about how they pick up your words anyway. Oh, I like that. I... (laughs) want to do over some of those. <laughs> but, but, but I'm going to stop you real quick. You can start now. Yeah, no, I actually have been doing a little bit more of that because yeah. getting my son out the door for the school bus gets me very anxious when like the bus is supposed <laughs> to come in four yes. minutes and he still doesn't have his socks on. And like, today I had, I said, I'm getting very, actually he's anxious. I'm like, this is making me very anxious. I'm going to go upstairs and remove myself because I realized if I didn't, I would just be like 
adding more anxiety to the moment. Mm -hmm. And so using words, which sounds like we should always be doing this, but instead of um, the action of frustration. So I love though that we can start this. I love in the womb because babies are aware. They're not, you know, just like a dumb meatloaf. Like they are very aware what's happening. And so I think opening that that gate of communication super early is, is wonderful. How can parents, what are ways parents can start to learn though to trust their own intuition and build relationship with recognition of their own intuition? Yeah, that, that is probably one of the things that I'd like teaching parents the most is to trust what they're feeling. And so I will start with something very practical, which is just starting to trust mundane things. For instance, if you're sitting at home and you realize, I just have this inkling to go outside and check the water sprinkler, go do it. Hmm. Right? Not to the point of, if I don't do it, the house is going to flood. Okay. Yeah. But just to the idea of, I just have an inkling, right? Every, have you ever had just like a little tinkling where it's like, I should go check the light in the bedroom? Yeah. You don't because you don't care and it's not that big of a deal. I teach people to start checking that. The way to know intuition from anxiety and frustration is it's just a tinkling to pay attention. I like that. Anxiety is if you don't do it, something bad is going to happen, right? But intuition is I should just pay attention to that. I think that in general, paying attention, I'm just going to speak from my own experience. Sometimes as a parent, I'm so on the go between work and parenthood mm-hmm. that I don't always pay attention to some of the things that I should. And if we slow down and look a little bit more instead of do all the time, I think that intuition could be a bit louder. Yeah. And it's, and I'll say this because I agree with the busyness of parenthood, especially now when we're thinking about how all of us are, most of us still are probably stuck at home doing a lot of stuff from home with no outlet. Mm -hmm. That I think is the best time to slow down and pay attention. And I'll give you and your listeners a really good way to just do it without it disrupting your natural flow. I just want you to start doing something I call a body scan. It's where you take deep breaths and it takes literally a couple seconds to start at the top of your head, taking deep breaths as you go through and mentally scan your whole body all the way down to your feet and then come back up doing the same thing, taking deep breaths and just paying attention to how does my body feel? Does it feel tired? Does it feel energized? Is my arm kind of tingly? Is my feet, are my feet tense? Like just paying attention to those things. It helps you actually to trust my shoulder actually does hurt. I can kind of start rolling it a little bit or my feet do hurt. I can actually rest up against this wall for two minutes or two seconds, right? That's intuition. That's funny you say that. That's actually how I start every prenatal yoga class, progressive relaxation from the crown, the head down, paying attention to, wow, I had no idea between my shoulder blades was so tight, or I had no idea I was clenching my jaw. So as you say that, I'm like, Deb, you have the tools. You just need to use the tools. (laughs) Boom. Boom. And I'll say this about intuition. Intuition isn't a new age clairvoyant prophecy, Miss Cleo thing. It's literally just paying attention and trusting that whatever you're paying attention to needs that attention in that moment. Yeah, that makes sense. So there was a chapter or a section in one of um, in one of the chapters where you talked about what happens if we only focus on resolving the surface behavior, but we don't look deeper to the child's emotional or mental state. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, let's use tantrums because I think those are the ones that it's really an emotional state for a child. Sure. Um, in the moment, you actually do have to focus on resolving the conflict because the child can be unsafe or there could be a real need for them to come back down off of that tantrum. And so I often tell parents, however you do that, especially if you don't have the skills yet, trust that that's what you can do at that moment. But after it's over, when everything's died down and maybe your child has moved on to playing with Legos or maybe they're at a snack, you can really kind of sit with them and start to pay attention to, I wonder what happened right before this and what's happening now and what did I do in that moment to help with it, right? Or if someone else helped, what did that person do to help, right? So let's say right before your child had been pulling on your shirt, mommy, 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 and you realize you had told him over and over in a minute, in a minute, in a minute. Two minutes later, there was a crash. Now we're in a tantrum you realized that he was trying to get your attention to show you something that he went into the room, kicked over, crashed, and it upset himself, right? This is something I think to pay attention to because it helps you even as the parent realize that happens to me too, that I ignore things or I'm not paying attention to things and I get so overworked that I yell at somebody. Mm. For our kids, they do the same thing. They might be trying to get our attention or they might be experiencing something and it gets so overwhelming to them that they fall out. Literally, if you've ever watched a kid have a meltdown, they literally, the whole body goes into the floor, right? They're, they fall out. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, that's that overwhelm of that mental and emotional space that for kids especially, they literally have no concept or no language around. So not just solving the surface, but really looking like, yeah, the tantrum's over, but what what caused that? What happened right before? Yeah. yeah. makes a lot of sense. And, and understanding that resolving conflict in the moment sometimes is important, right? Sometimes I do need to stop this right now. Right. Because of safety or because of where we are. But realizing that once you've stopped it, that you do want to go back, even if it's a day or two later and be like, I wonder what happened. Mm -hmm. So how can parents start to create their own parenting manual? And I like that when you're in your book, you didn't say do this, this, this. It wasn't there wasn't a manual is like, I am going to give you X, Y and Z. You really opened it up to make it individual for each parent. So what are some tools that people can start to think of that? Well, I think starting with what are you interested in about learning about parenting, right? Um, you said earlier, you read a lot of parenting books for your podcast. I'm sure some you're very resonant with and some you're like, eh, this doesn't really fit with yeah. the way I see the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Start there. How do you see the world, right? If you feel like gentle parenting is something that you've always kind of been interested in but don't know about, start there. If you've been like, I kind of like the crunchy, natural parenting stuff, I don't know about it, but I'm interested, start there. Really start from just what are you interested in? I think then really thinking about what philosophies help you with your unique issues. So for instance, you talked about your son having an ADHD diagnosis. That means books about children who are typically developing or don't have that probably won't resonate as much as reading books about being a parent of a child with ADHD or reading more about the ADHD brain in children. Those books will probably help you. And then realizing that every human experience isn't just in parenting books. And so realizing that maybe you might need to read books about communicating with your partner. That might be part of your parenting manual. Maybe you need to read books about healing childhood trauma. 
that might be part of your parenting manual. And understanding that the manual, even though it's called, you know, Deb's parenting manual, it's infused with all of the things that help you as a parent feel like you're moving towards the family you want to have. So that takes, I like that because then, so those listening out there, it starts again back to oneself and sitting with yourself of what, what are my values? What are my goals? What, how do I want my family to function? What do I resonate with? Instead of I picked up this book and they told me this and I have to follow this step. It, cause yeah. it's not going to fit everybody, but really yeah. sitting with my values. What are my values? What really fits into my life? What does my family unit look like? Yeah. I think that's really important. And if I, do you mind if I yeah, say this? Please, then, please, even yes. For the parents who have done that, who just kind of picked up whatever was kind of there and read it, if it didn't resonate, don't think that that's because you're such a bad parent. You can't get this parenting paradigm or philosophy. Just realize it doesn't resonate with you. And maybe this isn't for your family, right? And go find maybe a parenting book or a book that does resonate. Because I think there's a lot of marketing that goes into parenting stuff, unfortunately, unfortunately, however you want to see it. But I often tell parents, if a certain philosophy doesn't work for you, that's not because you're a bad parent. It might just be because that doesn't jive with your family and what you guys are And then it's the shame again. Like, oh, I tried this. I failed. I'm such a bad parent. Like, as I always joke, like, it all comes back to, oh, I suck. Like, (laughs) and we don't need that. Like, there's enough of that out there. We don't need to put that on ourselves. What are some strategies that encourage a healthy parent child relationship building? I would say any strategy that supports you getting to know yourself and your child better. And so I want to bring it back to you, Deb, like you do yoga, right? The more you do yoga, the more you get in tune with yourself and your body and your breaths. But it's also important to get to know how does your child exist like that? How does your child get back to themselves, right? I think it's important because our relationship, especially as the child grows, becomes and shifts from you being the caregiver to you becoming kind of a role model and a mentor to you kind of sharing life together. And so I often tell parents that the parent-child relationship evolves. And if you build it on a foundation of them always listening to you, it won't evolve the way it needs to. And so most of your strategies, when you think about how can I be better with my child should be, I need to always be making sure I'm getting to know myself better, but I also need to be curious about my child. Why did they pick red today? You know, I could, I should ask them, why did you choose red for that, for that drawing? Oh, because I think red is the best color ever. Now you just realize your kid's new color is red, right? And it was super simple, but you're just getting to know them and you're just kind of paying attention to how do things change. You're not putting a judgment on it. You're not saying, oh, they no longer like blue. I failed. I don't know where they are. You're saying, oh, it looks like there's red now. Let me get into why that is. I really, really like the idea of being more curious. Honestly, yeah. that comes up as a theme. I just, um, and many of the people I talk to and even the courses I take in my, as a lifetime learner, it's always comes yeah. back to curiosity. And I really love the idea of really looking at our children again. I feel like in the day to day, it can be so busy, but looking and, in a different type of question asking, because I'm sure there's many parents out there. Oh, what'd you do in school? Nothing. <laughs> Right. Like really just sat there for eight hours. Right. So like 
opening more curious conversations. Oh, this is exciting. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, if you can think about one final tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new and expectant parents, we'll be right back. So what is one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new parents or expectant parents, whatever you'd like to share? Yes, I will say you can always try again and you can always start again. I think with new parents, especially when you're just starting out, it feels like everything has to be done right or else. And I just want to remind you that you can always start again. Every day you get new information, try something new. Every week, every new appointment, right? You get new information, use that and say, I'm going to try again now that I have this information. Again, that takes like the guilt and the shame away, which is exactly what we want. We don't want to walk around with that sense of guilt and shame. So where can people find your work? Uh, You can find me uh, on shameproofparenting.com. That is probably the best hub to get to know where what I'm doing now. Uh, I am seeing clients right now. I'm doing what's called EMDR intensives for parents. So I'm weaving the shameproof parenting framework into this therapy modality called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR for short. And so if you're interested in that, uh, you can check out my website. My book is on there. Blogs are on there. Also, any links to get to me on social media. And so shameproofparenting.com is really the best place to start uh, if you want to get connected to me. And your blog is great. So yes, of course I read your book, but your blog also has some really great information. So all those listeners, if this is resonating with you, head over to Mercedes blog and the book, because again, as I mentioned, I've read a fair amount of, of parenting books, but there's something that just felt just seen and helpful. Like it didn't feel judged, which I know again, we come back to, we don't want that, but it was a really easy read as if you were just having a chat with your, your readers. And I appreciated that. So I appreciated this conversation. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.